0: As we've seen at the end of John's gospel, he tells us that the reason why he's written this gospel is so that we might find life in God through Jesus Christ, that we might find life in God through Jesus Christ. And one of the ways of reading Jesus' encounters with individuals is kind of seeing it as different angles, kind of different facets that John's showing us uh, why we, happen, we often don't find life in Jesus, even when oftentimes we, we think we are finding life in Jesus. Specifically, we're kind of turning into a part of John's gospel where at the end of chapter two, he said that Jesus didn't entrust himself to any man because he says, I, I know what is in the heart of man. And and what we're going to see over this chapter and the next coming are are Jesus' interactions with men and women, and in his interactions, he's disclosing something that is in us that keeps us from finding life in him. And today, what we're going to see is specifically that we're all born into a reality, into a nature, into a way of looking at the world that keeps us from finding life in Jesus and instead pursuing other things. That what we're born into sets the course for our life, and it, it kind of determines what we pursue with our life, what we define as life. I remember this uh, this hit me. I was kind of embarrassed by it. Still to this day, I kind of am. Uh, when I was in undergrad, so I grew up in Ohio, born and raised in Ohio. And, and one of the, the greatest things you can do if you're born and raised in Ohio is become an Ohio State Buckeye. And and wow, wow, that's, that might be your first amen in church. Uh, and so, and so, when born and raised in Ohio, go to OSU. And here's the thing: my freshman year at OSU happened to be the year that we won the national championship in football for the first time since 1968. It was 2003, and I happened that year to have my uh, my my student tickets happen to be right on the 50-yard line, right on the railing of the the like upper deck. It was like watching TV at all the home games all year. And so we get to the end of the. The, the last game we are beating, it's for years. My whole childhood, we, whenever we were on the cusp of winning the national championship, we'd always lose against Michigan. Michigan's always the last game of the year. And so we're playing Michigan. It's like, are we going to win? And at the last moment, they actually throw an interception in the end zone. The crowd goes nuts because that means we win the game. And all these men who are around me who had actually been students back when we last won the, the championship, they start weeping and they're crying. And I, in the moment, I realized... I, I'm just, like, overwhelmed by this, and it's like, my, my life, it's, it's happening, it's finally happening, and so I run up, I, I don't even think about this, I just, it's, like, in my nature, right? I run up, and I run down uh, towards the field, because I realize we're all going to rush the field, and so I run down towards the field, and there's this line, like, Red Rover, Red Rover, right, of cops, and I'm like, send me on over, Right? <laughs> And so I just, I just run straight, like they're literally link arms. I blow through the arms of some cops, okay? They start, I hear them yelling, running after me, but I'm just running towards the field. And then I get down to the field, and there's the bar there to get down, and, and, and I run, and I'm just going full speed. At this point, I'm realizing I could go to jail, right? <laughs> and so, but I'm just like, I've got to get on the field. So I run, and then I just catapult myself. Without thinking, and I forgot that the year before this, in order to add on a deck to the stadium, they actually had dropped the field 14 feet. And, and so I catapult myself as I'm running down to the field, just full speed, like Olympian style, just catapult, and then I realize it's a long way down, right? <laughs> and I literally just fly through the air, and then I land, and I feel around, nothing's broke. Yeah! And I just start screaming, and I run into the field. I don't know where I'm running, but thousands of people are running with me onto the field. I run into the end zone, and it's like, I don't know, let's take the goalpost down, right? And so we start grabbing it, then we get tear gassed. It's amazing. And then, so I'm, eyes are watery, yellow all over the place, wandering around, just standing around, looking, everyone's just in a day we've arrived, we've arrived. And then, and then I, I just have this moment then where I, I go over by the Michigan bench and they left all their helmets there because they were like, we're out of here. And so they just left it. And I had a moment where I was like, do I take a helmet, right? I was like, I need a keepsake. And I was like, you can't become a pastor if you go to jail for that. So, so I didn't do that. But then I went over to the center of the field and I don't know what got in me, but I just get down at the O at the center and I just start like grabbing dirt and I'm like putting it into like turf and like putting it in my jacket. And my friend finds me and my friend comes up he's like, what are, just, <laughs> right? what are you doing? I'm like, right? What are you doing? I just, I got to keep something, right? I got to have something. It's, I think that chunk is still somewhere in our basement, right? Much, it's like fossilized now, much to my wife's chagrin. Uh, why did I tell you that story? Well, here's the thing. There was something that got me to that point because I was, I was it's was like, what, what was I doing? Like, I, I look back at that and I'm like, I, I literally, was willing to almost be arrested, break my body, get tear gassed, and then look like a fool grabbing dirt and grass out of the ground, right? Like, what was going on there? Well, there was something I was after, and there was something I was pursuing because I had arrived. There was this moment where it's like life as I'd always dreamt that OSU is winning, and we're going to go to the national championship game. By the way, we won. It was amazing. But it's finally happened. But why was my life so driven for that? I remember when I met my, my wife, then I, I tell her she went to UCLA. And I'm like, yeah, I uh, went to OSU. Kind of this moment, like, she thought it was hot stuff, but wait till she hears I go to OSU, right? And, and she literally goes to me, what's a Buckeye? <laughs> Which I was like, it's, it's a poisonous nut, but th- it doesn't matter. Um. But here, what, what, what's that dynamic? What's it reveal? Why, she didn't, it didn't matter to her, but here's the thing. I was born into a family that was obsessed with OSU. I was born into something that said, this is life, right? And so my life was like just running after that and taking a hold of that. And, and here's what I'm saying. We are all born in, into something, and that something defines the pursuit of life for us. It defines how we think about what life is. It defines how we pursue it. It defines the passion we pursue it with. And, and of, of course, that's a humorous example, but reveals something dynamic and something that happens in our souls, which is that when we rec- what we receive life from, where we've received life, determines where we pursue life. Where we receive life, what we're born into, determines where we pursue life. We all have defaults, defaults about what's valuable, what's worth our lives, what's good, what's true. But what if the pursuit of those things, the pursuit that we're born into, what if it keeps us from pursuing the ultimate thing? What if it makes us define life in a way that we actually never find true ultimate life? That's exactly what Jesus is going to address today. This is a well-known passage, a passage that probably many of us have, have read. Probably there are a lot of verses in there that sound familiar to you. Even if you, you don't go to church, you've probably seen John 3.16 held up on a placard. And I think it's so incredibly easy to read this passage. As I was studying, I was struck by how we just read it, as kind of cliche. A lot of us may have even glazed over when we were hearing it read. But there are profound truths here what Jesus says is, if you truly want to have life in me, you have to recognize what pursuit you've been born into, and then you must be born again to start over a completely new reality if you're to find life in me. And so what we're going to look at first is the pursuit of life. What are we really after? The pursuit of life. Second, the lie driving the pursuit, the lie that drives the pursuit. And then third, the passion that unlocks true life the passion that unlocks your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, your word. Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we come here this morning, all of us hungering for life. We, we are awake and we're breathing, but Lord, we want life. We want satisfaction. We want our souls to be filled with joy. And Lord, that can only come from you and Lord, we find it in so many ways, and we're born into a specific way of pursuing that life. And so, Lord, would you help us this morning? Spirit, would you open our eyes to see that we've never truly known life as it is in you? And so, Lord, would you would you bring this word home to our hearts, to our souls? Would you bring us home to yourself, to life in you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John starts by giving us a clue. There's going to be this feller named Nicodemus, and and John gives us kind of a a hint right away about how he frames the text for how to read Nicodemus. Start back at uh, 2, chapter 2, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. He was talking at that point about the religious leaders and whatnot, and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, right away, read verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So, what's he saying right away? He's saying he's emphasizing there is a there's something that is in man. There's something that is lacking in man. Something that's in man. That, something's going on, and that same thing is going on here in Nicodemus. And he, so, right away, what John is doing, he's saying, "Exhibit a Nicodemus." And Nicodemus is an example of what all of our hearts do. Now, now that, it's kind of cryptic, what is not in the heart of man or what is in the heart of man. In fact, in chapter 5, it unpacks it a little bit more. Jesus is speaking to religious leaders again. He says, I do not receive glory from people. It's very similar to chapter 2. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in my name, my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. See, spiritually, Nicodemus is lacking something. He's lacking something. It says it right here in chapter 5. He says he's lacking the love of God. And because he's lacking the love of God... What's in him is seeking glory from man. In other words, there's this hole in him. And all of us do this. This is the universal reality, John is saying, that we have to deal with. It's what Augustine, he said, man is restless. Our hearts are restless until we find the rest in God. You heard it said there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. There's something in us. There's this vacuum, this hole. And until it's filled with the love of God, we'll go and we'll search for who knows what to try to fill it. And that's exactly where Nicodemus is at. We're all born with this restlessness. We're all born searching. We're all born on a quest, a pursuit for life. And something's got to fill that hole. So like us, Nicodemus found it in any way he could. That's why I think it emphasizes here that he was a ruler of the Jews, it seems that this is something that's very important for Nicodemus, that he's tried to fill that hole with power, with success, being on the winning team, right? And it may not be the same thing for us, but we fill, we pursue life and sometimes very good things, building a family or careers, retirement, vacations, Tasting all the best craft beer or whatever. You know, we all have these ways that we try to fill that hole and we try to find life. They're all good things, but can they give us the life that we are ultimately pursuing? The life that just always seems outside of our grasp. That's what's going on with Nicodemus. He's actually a very modern person in that way. The last clue that we get here is in verse 2. It says, this man came to Jesus by night. As we're going to see later on, this, this passage is going to kind of come full circle where this light and darkness theme in John's gospel is always where people kind of come with these kind of mixed motives or in other words, what's happening here is that it's highlighting that Nicodemus, he did come at night, historically speaking, he came at night but his own spiritual night was darker than he knew. An inner darkness, and he wasn't even aware of it. But it leads him, this pursuit of life leads him to Jesus. It's secretively, it's somewhat awkwardly, right? He knows Jesus seems to be offering something. There's something going on with Jesus. And so in verse 2, it continues. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, what's Nicodemus saying there? In the Old Testament, there were uh, often these prophecies about those who would come with signs and prophetic words and all these things, and this this kind of idea of God being with him and moving in power. And when that happens, that means that in these people, these leaders, these rulers, God would bring about his end-time kingdom. We see this over and over again in the prophets. So when, when, the, when Nicodemus is coming to him saying, hey, I think God is with you. I see God at work in you through these signs and whatnot. So what we're all wondering, see what's happening here is he's wondering, there's an implied question here. And he's saying, I see what you're doing. But the implied question is, are you bringing a kingdom? And what Jesus knows here is that this is what Nicodemus has been waiting for. Notice how he responds. Notice how Jesus almost seems like he changes the topic. Because Nicodemus has been saying, you're going to bring, I, I, I see, uh, you can't do these things unless God is with you. And then verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus hasn't said anything about the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hasn't said anything about being born again, right? What's Jesus doing? Jesus knows what Nicodemus is looking for. He knows Nicodemus' entire life has been chasing after this. In fact, you could say Nicodemus is probably up at night thinking about this, desiring this. He knows it's driving him, and he's desperate to find this kingdom. He's given his whole life to attaining it. He's even now actually putting his reputation completely on the line by coming to Jesus cryptically at night. Jesus can sense his desperation, his restlessness. But here's the thing. Jesus knows the kingdom Nicodemus thinks he wants isn't the kingdom his soul really needs. The kingdom Nicodemus thinks he wants isn't the kingdom his soul really needs. See, we all do this. It's easy to come to Jesus but what we really want in Jesus is we really want our life to be put together, right? We want to be seen as an upstanding moral citizen. We, 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 we want the, the techniques of Jesus. We want the political platform. We want the social agenda. We, it's so easy to come to Jesus. It's, in my head, it's kind of this picture like when, um, like when grandma comes for Christmas. Right, we're always like telling the kids, like you know, Grandma's gonna have presents, and it's like they come and the kid, like Calvin, our, our son, he like comes up and Calvin sees the gifts, like right, it's like behind. Imagine it's behind her back, and he can see the gift though, and he's like, huh, huh, there's a present, right? And then Grandma's like, come, you know, come here, hug me, and we're like, go hug And He's like, hey, hey, what you got? What you got, right? He's like, Merry Christmas, Grandma, and she's like, I love you, and there's like all this like interaction, and the whole time he's just looking at the gift, like, uh huh, uh huh, yeah uh-huh, uh-huh, can I have the gift now, right? Like, we, we almost in the same way, we do the same thing with Jesus, where Jesus is going, I'm here, that's what's happening here. He's going, I'm here, I'm the life, I'm the one, this, this is what it's all about. And what's happening is we're, we're in the same way. We see Jesus, and he's like, this This is what it's all about, and we're always kind of looking around at, like, all the different things that come with Jesus, and we're looking at going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. What about that? Uh huh. Right. And Jesus thinking what we think we want, which is the things that come with Jesus, are the things that we really want. Kingdom. Kingdom is just life as we dreamed it. We all have this picture of kingdom. It's, it's your best life. It's the thing that our hearts yearn for, and it's different for all of us. We all define it differently, but we all have a kingdom of our own that's different than the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, your hearts are meant to find the rest in me, and what will happen is you'll focus on these things, and you'll miss me. But notice Jesus doesn't berate Nicodemus here. He merely says, what you think you know, Nicodemus. They say, we know this about you, Jesus. We see these things. And Jesus says, what you think you know, you don't really know. What you think you see, you don't really see. Why? Jesus says, because you aren't born again literally in the greek it's kind of it's ambiguous the greek word for what we think of as again we usually translate that way but it's it's more likely the word from above you might actually have a little at the bottom in your bible it might say that it's ambiguous it could be above again we'll come back to that but what is jesus saying there what he's saying is you were born into this world and this world has given you a script This world has given you a box to see everything. This world has given you meaning. This world has given you some kind of purpose. This, This world has given you something. It's defined what is valuable and what is good and what is true. And you can't even fathom what you really want. Your heart wants something transcendent. And you just sense it's there and your heart is pulled towards it and you're trying to find it with whatever's right in front of you. And I'm telling you, Nicodemus, you can't find it there. Jesus is saying you're trying to get that kingdom by either building a kingdom or attaching yourself to one. But Jesus says you won't find it. He says you need to be born from above. You need a completely different reality. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you must be born again before you can even attempt to know what you really want. Before we can even begin to know if what we desire is even good. He's saying you have to... clearly you think differently. I was talking to my daughter this week and I was like, so what do you think this born again? You know, like we're just talking through it. And if you were born again, what would you, what would you do? And she was like, I would get more toys. Right? I was like, that's interesting. (laughs) I was like, I failed as a father. But What we do is we just think, oh, I'd be born. It's almost like reincarnation, not being born again in a new reality, but it's just, I'll start again with the same framework. We can't even think outside of, I was born again, how it would be different. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be born again to a completely different reality. Until then, you'll keep living by the old script, desperately spending your life looking for something you'll never find. And listen, again, every human being does this. It's why consumer economies work. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's why they work. It's why social media has blown up. It's why regimes invade. Because someone wants something and they're searching for meaning and they're finding it in Power. Yet it's why millions of people, now we're four decades in, over and over again flock to U2 concerts, and they sing with tears rolling down their cheeks. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's universal. What about you? Are you searching and never finding? I mean... Some of us are just dying to live. Like Nicodemus, what keeps you up at night? Now, why is that dynamic so at the core of who we are? Like, it's right there in the Bible all the time. It's like in the water we swim in, like, we're we're desiring this kingdom, we're desiring this life. Why is it there? Jesus goes there next. Notice Nicodemus doesn't say to Jesus, no, Jesus, I wasn't asking about the kingdom, right? <laughs> I just want to make a comment about your signs that you're doing. He doesn't say that. He doesn't deny it. He actually gets frustrated and leans into it when Jesus says, how can you have the kingdom of God? He said, you can have the kingdom of God, but you got to be born again. And Nicodemus makes a big deal about how to get the kingdom. He's going, yeah, I actually do want the kingdom, but it's how you're saying I can get it. That's where Nicodemus gets frustrated, and that's where he goes next. Look at verse 4. He's said, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Good question, right? He can, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is just taking this Literally. Again, what Jesus is saying is, you're thinking in terms of this world. You're thinking in terms of what you know. You're born into this reality, and you can't think outside of it. So Nicodemus is thinking that way. So he takes it literally. Imagine, by the way, you might be like, Nicodemus, come on, Jesus is clearly alluding to new spiritual birth. But think about it the first time you hear this, right? It'd be different. But then Jesus responds, Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Jesus is saying you have to be born by a completely different reality. Your life has to be driven and anchored in a completely different reality. What defines you must be utterly different. He says you must be born of water. What, What we've seen in John's gospel already is this theme of water that you need cleansed. I think this is the water, I think parallels, he cannot enter the kingdom. And I think spirit, that which is not born of the flesh, or what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the spirit is spirit, they kind of parallel. And he's saying, if you're not born of water, you can't enter the kingdom. In other words, if you're not washed, if you're not made pure, if you're not cleaned, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And here's the thing Jesus is saying, you are spending your entire life trying to scrub that stain out of your soul to make yourself good enough to find a kingdom, come back to that dynamic a little bit. But then also you have to be driven by the spirit. He's saying, Nicodemus, I want you to be animated. Your life is actually driven by the spirit of something. He's going to talk about that in a second, but I want you to be animated and driven by the spirit of God. Jesus is saying, if you want to transcend this rat race, listen, hear this. Jesus is saying, modern people, if you want to transcend the rat race, if you want to truly have life, If you want to have inner peace, no matter what the pace of life is all around you, life is busy, right? Life is stressful. There are things that come down, but if you want to have peace, if you want to have joy, if you want to have something internally that anchors your soul, Jesus is saying you need a completely different reality. You won't find it just by adding a Jesus bumper sticker onto your life. You need to be born again. Verse 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus saying here? It's kind of like all of a sudden he goes to the spirit realm now and he's talking about the water and where's Jesus going? Jesus is actually alluding to a very well-known prophetic vision. It's back in Ezekiel 36. It says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. See that water? Sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my words. See, what's Jesus doing? Why is he alluding to Ezekiel's prophecy? Because what Jesus is saying is what animates you, Nicodemus. What animates your life? What drives your life? The spirit that is when you is actually killing you. Right after this, Ezekiel is going to go into the famous Valley of Dry Bones, and the spirit's going to breathe. And there's going to be this rattling that Ezekiel hears. And as this rattling comes, and the breath of God enters into the bones, then they slowly come to life, and flesh comes onto them. And what Jesus is saying here is, you're dead. You're in a valley. What animates you is killing you and it's driving your soul right off a cliff. And what I want to do is I want to wash you and i want to make you new so you can be with me and I want to give you life and it's going to come through me. What the heart wants, the mind will find rational, the affections will find desirable and the will will find doable. What the heart wants The mind will find rational, the affections find desirable, and the will will find doable. If your heart goes after things that are not going to fulfill you, your mind will rationalize them, your affections will fall in love with them, and your will will be obedient to them. And Jesus is saying if you attach your heart to the wrong thing, you will think that you're making a life, and the whole time you're in a valley of dry bones. It would be night. Instead, Jesus says, I want to give you a new reality, one animated by my spirit. When it says here, the spirit and wind, those are connected. In the Old Testament, the word ruach, which is the word ruach, you got to have that, all right? Ruach. It's, the, it's a word that is for both spirit and wind. In and, and Genesis 1 through 3, we see it both used as spirit and then also as wind and the spirit moving and animating throughout and breath being the same word. And then also we have when it says that God walked with them in the cool of the garden, that word cool is actually ruach. In other words, all throughout Genesis 1 through 3, there's this picture of the Spirit animating and being amongst God and his people and animating and giving them joy and giving them life and giving them breath. And what Jesus is saying here is, now you're living by some other spirit, and I want to give you my spirit so you might know life again. And here's the thing, you're born into God's creation. His spirit animates everything and gives it life. If God's spirit did not show up today, we would all drop dead. That's why Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. And he says, but what happens is because you sense that rattling of where the Spirit is at work and bringing life, you sense that glory, this transcendent reality that's there, yet you can't take hold of it. It's like the wind. And what's happening in our souls, it's a picture of our lives when we want some, this transcendent thing. And no matter how much we consume, no matter how much we eat, no matter how much we exercise, no matter how much we purchase, no matter how much we sleep with people, whatever it is and conquer, whatever it is, It's why it's never enough, because it's like trying to capture the wind with a butterfly net. It's a transcendent thing that nothing in this world can give us. It must come from him. The only way you can truly have life is to be born again. But first, I'm going to hit the second point quickly. To do so, to have that life and be born again, you have to look at what animates, drives you right now the lie driving the pursuit. Look at verses 9 through 13. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things?" Jesus thinking, I'm, I'm clearly alluding to well-known Old Testament passages, but you're missing them. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Why can't he understand them? Because you can only think in terms of what you know. Your heart doesn't, isn't after this, so you can't know it. Your mind will not rationalize it. And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I, you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then Jesus says the reason why, I, only I can tell you. Only I can reveal this. Because only I am from above. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what Jesus is saying is if you want that transcendent life, then you need the one who descended from it the one who embodies it. He's saying, only I can really reveal what's really driving you. And then Jesus says this. I'm going to give you a picture, Jesus says, of what's actually going on in your soul and what really drives your life. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus doing there? Why does he say that? Jesus is giving him a picture, a well-known scene, another one in the Old Testament. And he says, something happened there that parallels where your heart is at and where all people's hearts are at for all time. It comes from Numbers 21. This is what happened. At Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. This is right after they're kind of cleansing the land, and they're in the wilderness wandering. And the people came, became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, Moses? Moses. For there is no food and no water, and we load this worthless food. They angry, right? They hangry. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents. Listen to this. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So that the people of Israel died. Moses is like, take that. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at this bronze serpent and live. What is going on there? And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man, me... I must be lifted up. Wise serpents. It's a judgment of who they are following, what they've become. It's a judgment of what they've been born into and how they are acting. And they're pursuing life and acting out of accordance of their birth and their nature. like the serpent in the garden. See, here's the thing. What's happening there is they're grumbling against the Lord, and what he does is he sends fiery serpents, and he says, I want you to look at these fiery serpents. The judgment is coming, and it's like a mirror to see yourself in the state of your soul. See, in the garden, there was this lie, and the serpent came into the garden and to the woman, and he said, did God really say? It essentially ends up being, is God really good? Eve, is God really good? Is he really going to give you life? Or has he done this whole thing to actually keep you from life? To not know wisdom, to not know truth, to not know good and evil. And Eve falls for that lie. Adam falls for that lie. We fall for that lie. The belief that God is not good, that God is not loving, but in fact, he's evil. That in fact, actually, if we could just thank you very much, go our own way and build our own kingdom, then we could have a much, much better life. And so what happens is this is why they grumble, this is why they seize or seethe. Israel was taking land, they were building a kingdom, and then they're in the wilderness all of a sudden. And so they grumble and they yell out at the heavens. Why? Why? Because deep down they believe the lie that he isn't good, he isn't loving. So they go about building their own kingdom. In other words, the problem with our pursuit of life is that it's animated by the lie of the serpent versus the life of the spirit. Our life is often animated by, and what drives our life is the lie of the serpent. This is why Jesus says you have to look up. The Son of Man must be lifted up because that's actually the problem. That's the lie. And what happens in the desert is he says, look at the serpent. If you look at the serpent, then you will live. In other words, it's like looking in a mirror and saying, yes, that's me. That's my heart. That's my soul. That's what I do. And when you acknowledge it, that's when you can begin to find life. And what Jesus is saying is that now I will take the serpent's place, I will take your place, and when you look at me, you will live. When you look at me and you see your sin on me, when you see the serpent, and you acknowledge that is me, that is the beginning of new birth. But we often don't want to look in the mirror. I mean, think about it. Why why would we want to look in the mirror? Why do we want to acknowledge if it's the only life that we've ever known? This is what leads to the final point. Jesus says, because in the very act of being lifted up, I'll put on display the life you've always been looking for. The passion that unlocks true life. I think we are so accustomed to hearing John 3.16 that it has become cliche. Because a lot of times it lacks context. Right When you hold it up at a sporting event, John 3.16, I remember as a kid, I didn't grew up in the church and I would see this John 3.16 thing. I was like, I, what is that? <laughs> and I'd read it. It was like, okay, God is love. That's nice. But if you read it carefully, you notice what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and us because it flows out of this serpent imagery. Read verse 16. Four. Four. See, it's connecting it to what came before. Just as Jesus, he's going to be lifted up in the, just as the the serpent had to be lifted up in the wilderness. And we look at the serpent and we find life. He says, in the same way, for God so loved the world. In response to our lashing out and living as fiery serpents ourselves in in this world. And going about life in that way, God responds in love. That's why he did it. And I think, again, we're so accustomed to reading this that we forget, we miss what's being said here. What we've seen again and again, John has been impressing upon us is God is love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God himself, he is this community, this trinity of love. And out of that love, he created this world. Out of that passion for his love, out of that delight in his love, he created the world. And what happens is he says, you're perishing. The serpent came in and you following his lies. And because of it, you're perishing and you're just headed off to hell. And so, in the midst of it, what God does when He comes in His love is this isn't just some sentimental, sappy love. What God is saying is, my very nature moves me towards saving you and bringing you back into the state of my love. Because so often, what we do in this world is we live by this lie that says, you must make yourself lovable. It's all about building your own kingdom. Make yourself lovable enough to be attached to a kingdom. Build a kingdom and then you'll be lovable. Everything is make yourself lovable, make yourself lovable, make yourself lovable. That's how you save yourself. And we're perishing. John 3.16 is not just about being saved, but saved to what? To life with God, to the love of God. We don't have to attain it, we have it. The quest is to go deeper into it. He says, whoever believes in him, trust in him to provide that real life, that true life, wouldn't perish, wouldn't spend their life just going after the kingdoms of this world until one day it just becomes an eternal reality. Look at verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's saying we're already condemned. See, this is it makes sense now when you read it in context. He's saying we're condemned because we're already in the nature of the serpent. That's why we're already condemned, we're already perishing. We're already stuck pursuing life in this world, and we can't see life when it's right there in front of us. Instead, Jesus is saying, you can be born not of the lie of the serpent, but of the love of the Savior. What I found fascinating when studying this, this time that never jumped out at me before, is that this new birth, this is one of the places where you actually see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all show up in the same passage. And the picture here, I think, is that we're born into a world. We're born of the lie of the serpent. We're born to this futility. We're born from this emptiness. And it's just go make a way, go make a life, go make a kingdom, go make yourself lovable. And then if you make yourself lovable, then you'll be loved. And that drives so much of our life, and it drives so much of the brokenness, and it drives so much of the sin that we commit in trying to find that by just manipulating and using and trying to find it by any way we can. And what he's saying here is do you see that you need a completely new birth? That is not just you're born again, but you're born from my love, from my very self, from Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are working together to redeem you and make you new, and now you are born from love. That is your reality. That is what you'll be saved back into. In other words, you don't have to be lovable so that you'll be loved. You are lovable because you are loved. And that radically transforms how you live your life. To be fueled by God's love, to be fueled by that reality, that God has embraced us in his grace no matter the shame, no matter the guilt that we carry in. He has washed us and now fills us with that life. And what's interesting is this operates like an invitation to Nicodemus. I'm going to quickly, landing the plane now. It changes Nicodemus. There's no real resolution in this passage, but it's interesting because Nicodemus shows up two more times in the gospel. The first is in chapter 7. It says, the officers, the chief priests and Pharisees that came and said, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, we never, no one ever spoke like this, talking about Jesus. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you too from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, what happens here is Nicodemus in the midst. So here's the thing, new birth and life does not mean that life is just simply easy, but what it means is that you have a love, you have a reality that carries you through so that even here, when opposition comes, when the kingdoms of the world turn against you, you still have something where you float to the surface. And Nicodemus had a love that allowed him to endure even through the opposition of the kingdoms of the world but not only that it also allowed him to persevere through the doubts and the difficulties of life at jesus's burial you may not have caught this but nicodemus shows up again after these things joseph of arimathea who was a disciple of jesus but secretively for fear of the jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of jesus you may be familiar with that part of the story And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. What's happening here? Nicodemus, even in the midst of when death has separated him from the earthly Jesus, continues to trust. And he knows that even if Jesus would welcome him to himself in the night, in the midst of his running, in the midst of his living as a fiery serpent, in the midst of the time when Jesus would have rejected him, when he was completely unlovable, then he knows in the midst of the hardest times of life, when he's filled with doubts, that the love of God will carry him through. And here's my question. Is the thing that you're pursuing, the kingdom that you're trying to grab hold of, the kingdom that you're finding life in, Does it sustain you? Does it sustain you? What changed in Nicodemus? He rejected the lie of the serpent, and he began to live in the love of the Son. He responded to it. Notice how Jesus invites Nicodemus at night to come into the light. We're ending here at verse 19 and 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who loves wickedness, does wickedness, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This started at night. And what Jesus says is, Nicodemus, the night's all around us. This is really your state. But if you will turn from the darkness within you, If you'll turn from belief in the lies of the serpent, then you'll find life. That is the way to new birth. That is the way to new life. So I'd encourage you to take time, stock, just to take stock to reflect, to go before the Lord this week and ask, Lord, where am I living in the night? Lord, where am I believing the lie that you're not good, that you're not loving? Jesus says, don't stay in the darkness. Come into the light. Be born again. Be born again of his love and find life in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the life that you've given us in Christ. Lord, I ask that you would... Lord, this passage really is a passage that we can't grasp as you say without your Spirit at work. Lord, without you, we're left to the lie. But Spirit, you've made known to us the truth of Christ. And so Spirit, would you shed the light into our hearts so that Lord, we would step out of the darkness into the light. Lord, would you surround us with others that we can go to, to do that tangibly. Lord, would you give us life to not live in the lie, but to be born again, for that to change the pursuit of our life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.